0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A list of 30 real estate proposals from the General Services Administration includes a plan to shrink Social Security Administration space in the D.C. area. GSA has a request into oversight committees on Capitol Hill to cut SSA from around 430,000 square feet in three buildings to under 205,000 in one. The Washington Business Journal reports the list also includes a request for FEMA to expand at its C Street location instead of prep for a move to the St. Elizabeth's campus. The Trump administration's nominee to become the director of the Office of Personnel Management lists time to hire, retirement processing, and IT modernization as three of his priorities if the Senate confirms him. Senators of both parties asked John Gibbs about controversial tweets he's made in the past that those senators described as anti-Semitic, anti-Islamic, and endorsing conspiracy theories. Federal Times reports Gibbs told the committee he leads a unit of more than 700 employees at the Department of Housing and Urban Development in a nonpartisan way. The Defense Department's planning live tests of artificial intelligence dogfights, among other AI initiatives. Defense Secretary Mark Esper says another initiative will include 10 countries working on building ethical principles into AI development. FedScoop reports the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center inside the Pentagon will lead the multination ev- effort. The Defense Information Systems Agency is creating what it calls a one-stop shop for storage. It's working to expand its storage offerings to cover everything the department's offices could need. Carissa Landymore is the cloud storage program manager at DISA. Carissa, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do you mean by one-stop shop? What does that mean for people who are essentially your customers at, at uh, DISA for mill drive?
1: Sure. First, thank you, Francis, for having me today. It's it's great to be here with you. Um, Before we kick off talking about that comment, let me tell you guys a little bit about what MillDrive does for the department. Um, you know, MillDrive is a cloud storage solution that's available today on both the Nippernet and Cippernet. Um, it is hosted and stored inside DISS data centers and it's the only on prem cloud storage solution available in the department today. When it was originally stood up, we had the opportunity a couple of years ago to get out there and talk to different mission partners across the department and we quickly realized that there's not a lot of storage available Available for these end users to conduct their day-to-day operations so what DISA wanted to do was get together and provide a next generation file service which is exactly what MillDrive anywhere is set out to do um, it's a file sync and share capability and what I mean by that is it provides end users the ability to have full ser- self-service so they now can grant permissions to end users and other folks to collaborate and share data. They have the ability to provide read-write access. And that really does two things now for organizations. It gives them the ability to reduce their overall hardware footprint, move that storage uh, storage legacy equipment into DISA's data centers and reallocate your system administrator resources to other um, you know, mission critical projects. Now with that, we've been out there now talking to other mission partners and better gathering requirements. And we learned one thing, everybody needs a one-stop shop for storage. We can't continue to silo our storage into other areas. That creates, it's more costly, and it creates security concerns. If you've got to protect multiple areas where data is being stored, that can be costly and cause uh, security concerns as mentioned. So what we did was talking to our mission partners, we realized this and we said, okay, everybody needs to get to the cloud, but they need tools to be able to do that. So on our roadmap, we have two capabilities. We have our mill capacity storage as a service capability, and we have our mill edge capability. We're finalizing our deployment, I'm sorry, our development of the mill capacity service with MillDrive edge soon to follow. And what these will do is really provide tools to get you to the cloud, right? So the, the storage application integration is really what's focused for capacity, while the edge piece is focused on moving data from your legacy data centers into the cloud Um, so we're very fortunate to have the opportunity right now to get out there talk to mission partners gather their requirements and help them ultimately meet the dod's cio cloud strategy
0: i think the most the biggest benefit of all the ones you described there carissa is the idea that for organizations that have legacy systems That they're not ready to move the application yet they can at least move the storage and that provides them incremental steps to be able to make those transitions more thoughtfully is that what you're headed for is that what your goal is there
1: absolutely yes because everyone you know you think about COVID, right? So folks today, we've had these tools available, but COVID's really given us that lo- that extra push, but maybe folks aren't all ready to go there all at once. So now we're going to be able to provide a storage capability that's a portfolio consisting of multiple options, and you can pick and choose and kind of take those steps necessary to get there.
0: About a minute and a half left, Carissa. I, you anticipated what I wanted to ask you about next, and I, that is, is is COVID causing you to want to do things that you didn't think about six months ago? Or are you accelerating things that you already had in the pipeline or some combination of both?
1: Yeah, I know that that's a great question. So, you know, as I mentioned, mill drive has been around for two years, but that was our unclassified capability. COVID has allowed us and kind of pushed us to take that step and push folks to really start adopting these solutions and it un, it kind of revealed hey we probably need to get this out on the net as well so we quickly with with just the leaders and and our vendors were able to within 5 weeks Deploy a ZipperNet instantiation of our MillDrive service so that folks have access to their data regardless of device or location. Whether you're using unclassified devices or Zipper devices, you now have continuous reliable access to your data anytime, anywhere. Um, in addition to that, we've also been able to extend our services into the commercial internet. So as long as you have, you can meet two credentials, right? Or two requirements, uh, DoD credentials and a CAC reader, you are able to now access your data, which was big for us in COVID. We and we DISA were really happy that we could support the department in being able to continue their operations and um, accessing their data from a non-government uh, equipment.
0: Carissa Landy, more of DISA, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Up next, uh, using a new color of money to buy software at the Pentagon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the promise of pilots and what the change would mean for acquisition across the department. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Secretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment Ellen Lord says pilot programs will test out a new color of money the Pentagon can use to buy software. The change would add a more agile approach and give software its own budget activity. Jen Palkas founder of Code for America, she's former deputy chief technology officer of the United States. Jen, welcome back. It's good to see you again. You tweeted about this. This is a way bigger deal than it sounds. Why did you feel that way? What's important about this? It's important because
2: it's so critical that the nation get better at building software actually across government but particularly in defense where our national security is being eroded by uh sort of slowness and poor quality software and this is probably one step among many that need to happen that will help the department do this better and faster
0: you use the word building software that i and i think that's that's important because historically it strikes me the government would do a huge waterfall project they, with some vendor that they would just buy the code from. They they weren't involved in the building of it. What has that transition looked like, and what needs to happen, in your view, for that transition to continue effectively?
2: Well, the government is always going to use vendors to build a lot of the software that they need. Um, but, of course, what we're looking for is them to be intimately involved with it and direct more appropriately how it gets built. And you're absolutely right. The current system, whether it's the development, the budgeting, the financing, or the oversight, is built for a waterfall world. We know that doesn't work. So we need people in the department who really understand how this works and can look at it from the front all the way to the back. And critically, what the color of money is uh, intended to do is to look at how it's built in the commercial world and the world we live in today and say, it works very well when we build it uh, iteratively and centered on users. Well, we can't do that if we have separate colors of money for looking at uh, looking at and planning up front, then building it, and then sustaining it. That's simply not how good software is built today. And this color of money would allow uh, the planners and uh, implementers within the department to contractor software in a new way.
0: Would you like to see the government method completely aligned to how it's done in the commercial world or is there an adaptation process that step by step in the commercial world might not necessarily apply in the government space but there is certainly adaptation that will make sense for the, for the public sector?
2: There's always adaptation of course within government. Um, it's very important that we understand that this is not about Picking stuff up blindly from the private sector and thinking it will work in government. We know that does not work. But I will say that um, soft, the way software is built is known. The way that it works is known. Um, Francis, what's your favorite app on your phone? What is oh, you I'm mean? not
0: sure I should say that on television. I think it would say too much about the, the sports that I watch.
2: Okay, well, whatever app that is, and I think most of us can relate to that. The thing that is indispensable to us that makes our lives easier. It was probably built with a team of 15 developers, 20, until it launched. And then for quite some time, it was built and maintained by a really small group of people. When it became very popular, and we knew that it worked, and it needed to scale, now we have thousands and thousands of people supporting these apps that really work. We do it the opposite way in government, and particularly in the Department of Defense. We see projects that have 1,200 programmers on them from day one. That doesn't work because they're not able to figure out what is actually needed and deliver that value quickly. You see these projects that really have no deliverable value for many, many years where they're checking off requirement. And this is would allow the, government, the department to do a much better job of building teams that can do it the way that we know work.
0: These pilot programs that Ellen Lord referred to, if they work well, what will that look like, Jen?
2: you will see the delivery of value much sooner you will see hopefully also i think an important part of it is better oversight so congress is of course worried about any changes to the way that they can evaluate how the department spends money they're also not happy with the outcomes that the department gets in terms of software today and so there's a process that will be needed through this pilot not just to get better software out of them but to educate all the stakeholders about how important it is to evaluate these according to delivery of value sooner rather than that we are following a plan to the T, uh, you know, according to requirements that were developed sometimes a decade earlier. If software, if the technology world moves as fast as it does today, it is not useful to check a, uh, the value of a project based on requirements that were built 10 years ago.
0: We have about a minute left, Jen. Is that ongoing incremental deliverable the best way to judge the success of these pilot programs or are there other measures that you would watch?
2: You know, the team at the DOD who was working on this does a fantastic job of clarifying what metrics these projects should be based on. And there's very specific uh, requirements in there and specific measures that they're going to be looking at. And I think that that's fantastic. I won't go into all of them, but I do believe that we will start to see a more common understanding of how you should look at software from a development perspective, from an oversight perspective, and from a planning perspective.
0: Jen, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you back.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Up next, keeping federal buildings clean and safe during the coronavirus. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the Public Building Service still needs to do to protect employees going back to the office. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Public Building Service needs to tell building occupants sooner when it learns about coronavirus cases, according to the General Services Administration, Inspector General. The update raises concerns about contractors cleaning and disinfecting workspaces the right way as people come back to offices all across government. Danny Werfel's managing director and partner at the Boston Consulting Group is former acting commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. Danny, welcome. Thanks for coming on. What would you take away from this work of the GSAIG as you read it?
3: Well, first of all, I think it's a a good sign that, uh, that we already have the IG community looking in real time at the activities that the government is undertaking to protect the workforce as they head back into buildings for COVID. I mean, typically when you think about an IG report, you think about it coming out three or four years later, you know, looking back and, you know, the crisis is already over, so there's not a lot to be done. So it's actually impressive That you're getting kind of a flash report in real time that allows the agency in this case gsa to to see the constructive criticism that's uh that's being provided and take some steps to improve
0: one of the criticisms that agency people usually give of ig reports is well that was a snapshot in time when the ig looked at this issue at some point in the past and it's usually been a fair amount of time in the past The nature of this epidemic is that this didn't happen this couldn't have happened too long ago this is pretty fresh information that should be um, fairly actionable is that fair to say
3: yeah i mean this is you know but but if you read the ig report it's interesting it doesn't say that the um that the facilities weren't cleaned appropriately it's it's more of the um the paperwork and the The controls that are put in place around how GSA is overseeing the cleaning activity. I think the the more substantive issue in the report, from my perspective, is the reporting to the workforce of when there has been a COVID positive situation in their building. And here the IG is saying you have to, you know, the expectation is that there'll be more real time reporting of a COVID positive situation in a building to the broader workforce. And if you read the report, you see there's, a there's GSA is reporting, but there's being, there's a little bit of a disconnect in it getting to the workforce. So all of this, in my opinion, is a positive sign that there's a lot of eyes looking at this to make sure that we get everything right and you know we're going to be in this for a while and so the fact that you have this type of early reporting on some improvements that can be made is a good sign Uh,
0: no one doubts that the response itself and and the way that we deal with the virus itself should be based on science as far as people coming back to the office though should that be maybe more art than science? I mean, should there be latitude for each agency? Should there be latitude for each agency's installation? Should there be, or or should there be, do you think, a government-wide response, this is how we're going to handle this, or maybe for some aspects of it, there should be, and some aspects of it should be based individually on the agency or the building?
3: Yeah, I, I typically am in favor of, you know, you know from my experience at OMB if that's any lesson learned is that the best is an umbrella set of of guidance uh and principles and in some cases requirements that that are designed to be government-wide and then each individual agency kind of takes that baton and runs with it and figures out if there's any specific adjustments that need to be made to deal with the specific situation that their agency is facing. All of it should be guided by science. All of it should be guided. The the guiding principles should be, you know, the protection of the workforce, the mitigation of any potential spread of the virus. Um, None of it should be guided by anything in the political realm. But again, I would think that if I was back at OMB or working with GSA on this, You'd want an umbrella policy that everyone can fit within, but then you might have you know, an agency that has a unique set of circumstances and they either need to go further and and do more, or in some cases they may need to do less, but that's something that OMB and GSA could review and, and on a case-by-case basis.
0: And we just have a minute or so left, Danny, but I think that was the most important thing that I saw in this work is I didn't get any sense— that the inspector general found that there was any potential danger to the employees. It was more an issue with documentation and how certification was happening for that clarity. Did you read it the same way?
3: Same, The the only thing that I thought was interesting and I assume it'll get fixed is in the communication of a COVID positive to the workforce, GSA essentially has been working through a middleman to get that message out. And, and that was slowing things down. And so I think the the fix there is to ensure more direct communication to the workforce. And based on my understanding, GSA will will look at that and see if there's a better way to communicate. That is kind of a substantive safety issue to get that information out, but it looks like everyone's on the same page to get it done.
0: Very quick final thought, either based on your OMB experience or your IRS experience, obviously the safety of the employees coming back is uh, concern number one. What would concerns two and three be for you, Danny?
3: Yeah, well, productivity, um, the mission. You know, right now there's a lot of telework going on and and the agencies can look at what is uh, slowing our ability to serve taxpayers, to serve citizens by remaining teleworked. And let's open up the things and bring people back into co-located environments where it's gonna have the highest impact. So once you protect the safety of the worker, you move into um, an understanding of what's gonna have the highest mission impact by getting people back in. I also think, you know, you also wanna think about the um, the economy and getting people back into city centers um, as well. And that's kind of a, you know, also on the list of things to think about.
0: Danny Werfel, thanks very much as always.
3: Thank you, Francis. I'm Cherise Hanner. You can now
2: keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV.
0: That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at eight and eleven on WJLA twenty four seven News, and Sunday mornings at ten thirty on ABC seven. To stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Cherise Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.